Good evening. We're so glad that you could celebrate Christmas with us this evening as we celebrate the Advent of Christ. The word Advent means the arrival of an important person. Advent is a time for serious reflection on both comings of Christ. Christ has come and is coming again. And in order to celebrate this season, we will have lit four candles symbolizing the hope of the prophets, the faith of Mary, mother of Jesus, the joy of the shepherds, and the peace of which the Magi remind us. Three of these candles were purple, symbolizing Christ's majesty and royalty. The third, joy candle, was pink, reminding us of the great anticipation we experience as we were halfway through the Advent season. So tonight, Christmas Eve, we will light a larger white candle, symbolizing Christ's arrival on earth. These candles are held within the Advent wreath, which symbolizes Christ's eternity and his everlasting life offered to those who believe in his name. Tonight, the candle will be lit by the Mishura family, so I invite them to come forward with their readings. As we come to the Christ candle, let us hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they devoid the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle Tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We light the first candle of Advent to remind us of the prophesied Messiah whom God foretold throughout the generations, giving them the hope we share that as Christ has come, he will come again. We light the second candle of Advent to remind us of the faith that Mary, the mother of Jesus, exercised as she bore the Christ. We are reminded by her demonstration of faith to trust in God's provision as we confidently await Christ's return. We light the third candle of Advent to remind us of the joy experienced by the lowly shepherds upon hearing the news of the Messiah's birth. Their joy encourages us to be glad that Christ has come and joyfully anticipate his return. We light the fourth candle of Advent to remind us of the peace that Christ's salvation brings to all tribes, tongues, and nations in the world. This peace was shown in the wise men who came to worship Jesus. This picture of the Magi reminds us of the coming day after Christ's return when all nations will gather around his throne to worship. We light the Christ candle in celebration of his incarnation when God wrapped himself in created human flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. We remember the God-man who lived a blameless life so that he could be our pure and holy sacrificial lamb and take upon himself the sins of the world. We also rejoice that Christ did not remain in the tomb, but he rose again on the third day. As we have anticipated celebrating this arrival, we also look forward to the day when he will return again to claim his bride, the church. 
This evening's theme is wrapped in reflection on the mystery that we just sang about. And at various points in our service this evening, we're going to reflect on, on God as man and God being unified in human flesh and thinking about the incarnation. And so this first segment, we're thinking about Christ as the God-man. It is particularly a mystery that has been hard for many through the centuries to wrap their minds around. And it was in 1098 AD that a man by the name of Anselm, while living in Italy, composed a theological response to how it could be that God was wrapped in human flesh. He wrote a book that has a peculiar Latin name called uh, Crudeus Homo, which means why God became man. And it is important concept for us to wrap our hearts around by faith. We may not fully be able to comprehend it intellectually, but the reality is that God has required sacrifices for sins for many, many centuries. In fact, the shedding of blood was required for payment of human sin. Through the years, millions and millions of lambs were required and slaughtered year after year. But the question remains, can the blood of lambs be sufficient to cover the cost of human rebellion? Can even the most spotless of lambs substitute for a human. After all, a lamb is still a lamb. And so, an infinite God who requires a satisfaction for human sin, and for God to be satisfied requires that a human being take on the punishment. It's a repayment that actually no human could possibly carry out on their own. Because if you have offended an infinitely holy God, who could ever pay that debt? other than God himself. That is how it is. In fact, you don't have to be a theologian to understand this truth. You may have a child at one point or you have a younger sibling at one point in your life who has broken something that is intensely priceless to you. And they have no means to repay it. You can't take blood from a rock. So what do you do? You forgive them and you absorb the cost of their debt, and you take that into yourself. In other words, this is exactly what God did, and the only way to demonstrate that to us as human beings was to embody the punishment himself. And so he wrapped himself in human flesh, he came and dwelled with us and became the perfect lamb, the perfect son substitute, and he was nailed to a cross as a substitute and payment for us. In that way, God absorbed the debt of the whole world. So when we began this Advent journey back at the early part of December, and if you had been a part of our series, we began thinking about the promises of the coming Savior, the promises of one who would come and be the victor for our human problem. The promises began as embodying a little child who would come. This child would not be just an ordinary child. In fact, this child would become a king and would have an eternal kingdom. One of the prophecies that we were leading to is found in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. 
which speaks of this unlikely child who would come to be this God-man. In Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. From henceforth, even forever, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is clearly no ordinary child. And this child is none other than God-man. Many people ask today, who is Jesus of Nazareth? John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the greater Lamb. Jesus is the final Lamb. There is now no more need for sacrifice, because in Jesus it is finished. The victory has been won. Jesus is the God-man Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. As we consider the mystery of the Incarnation, we're going to consider this in pieces, thinking now about Christ as God. We probably take for granted that most Christians through the centuries have believed that Jesus Christ was God-man. But while that was the true orthodox position, it was a position that was tenuously held. In fact, in fact, centuries before Anselm, there was an eruptive controversy that occurred in North Africa as the Christian church was in its early stages. A man by the name of Arius, an elder of the church of Alexandria, was well-liked. He was a good spokesman. He was articulate. He could communicate, and people liked him. But he began to teach that God had been created, or that Jesus had been created before he was incarnated into the manger. Arius claimed that, strictly speaking, uh, the second person that we know as the Son of God was not a part of the Trinity. And so it caused a lot of consternation in the church. And the bishop at that time of Alexandria recognized the error of what was being taught, that the Son of God had been created and therefore was not divine. Both sides had a collection of verses, and there was quite a controversy that was going on. Arius thought that the bishop's position destroyed a unified God. Arius, on the other hand, uh, was putting the church into jeopardy, making Jesus as an object to be worshipped that was not God. This was quite a problem. And so eventually Arius was removed from the church and he was excommunicated, but he had a following of people, and he began to cause disruption through the streets of, of Alexandria. People began walking down the streets chanting, there was a time when God was not. There was a time when God was not. Well, thankfully to the providence of God, a young man in Alexandria was growing up at that time whose name was Athanasius. He had great gifts as well and became a spokesman and a champion for the truth about who Jesus Christ was. He led, he led the church... Uh, to the Council of Nicaea, and during that time period, Athanasius uh, guarded the gospel. The church unified 
and gave recognition to that Jesus Christ was truly God in human flesh. The verses in the book of John, John chapter 1, were guarded for us. In John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Athanasius did us a favor. He described the, the incarnation Something like an imperial visit. Something like a king coming into your hometown. A small town, perhaps even like Honesdale. Coming and taking up residence there. And the house that the king would come to would be guarded and protected. The whole town would become aware of this presence of such a powerful being. And there would be protection from bandits. Athanasius described this as it would be like the king of the universe coming into the world, visiting our human city, living in one of our houses. And thanks to his coming into our home, we are now protected from the threat of the enemy. We are now protected by the evil, from the evil one. And because of that visit, Jesus Christ, we are now free, free to be what God has intended us to be, that is capable of living in communion with God. Jesus is the God-man, the Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world. In this last segment of reflection, we consider that Christ was not just God, but he was also man. In the first century, there were some false teachers who claimed that Christ was simply a spirit. Some said that his body was merely an appearance, kind of like a ghost that miraculously looked like a body. These people denied that uh, Jesus was born indeed as a baby in a manger. And which actually in their way of thinking would have put Jesus underneath the power of this material world. And so they said that Jesus only seemed to have a body. The leaders of the church, the very, very early church in the first century, saw this as a serious denial of some crucial Christian doctrine. Even in John's gospel, you can see hints of John trying to combat this thinking in the late part of the first century. You can see the concern when he describes the crucifixion and the spear that pierced the actual body of Christ to show that Christ was not just a spirit apparition. Christ, when he was resurrected, he dined with the disciples on the lake, according to John. He ate fish and he ate bread, something that a spirit and a ghost could not do. Just 20 years after the completion of the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, a man by the name of Ignatius in the city of Antioch, where a lot of the missionary activity of the church started, he wrote in 107 AD, he wrote a letter to a man by Trallians out of concern that people would be taken astray with this false teaching. And this is what he said to Trillians. Be deaf, therefore, whenever anyone speaks to you apart from Jesus Christ, who is the stock of David, who is of Mary, who was truly born, ate, 
and drank, was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was truly crucified, and died in the sight of the beings of heaven and of earth and the underworld, who was also truly raised from the dead. For those of you who have had a longer history with the church, perhaps you've been a part of other church traditions where you've recited the Apostles' Creed. The very earliest edition of the Apostles' Creed comes a hundred years later after this letter from Ignatius and bears the, the essence of those early teachings that were necessary to defend. Why does it matter that Jesus would have human body? Why would that matter? Particularly the same reason that Anselm was concerned about, that the deity of Christ had to flow through his veins... Christ also had to have a truly human body to absorb the punishment for the sins of the world. Jesus could not satisfy God's wrath if he were man only. It had to be a unique combination to elevate the sacrifice but truly be still a sacrifice. Furthermore, I think it's important for us to know as well that Christ also had to become a man so that he could be a sympathetic priest to us a sympathetic Savior. The book of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then hold our confession and draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Anselm asked the question, why? Why was it that God became a man? And the truth can be simply put for us this evening with these words found in John's Gospel, the 16th verse of the third chapter. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is the God-man lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And to believe in him means that we come to the realization that Jesus was God in the flesh and he died for our sins so that we might find the forgiveness that we desperately need. And to believe in him means to turn away from your sin and ask for the forgiveness that God freely gives to you in Christ. God offers you himself in Christ, the one who truly lived, the one who truly died, the one who truly rose again for you and for me. Jesus is the God-man lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I thought it might be fitting for us to close together with a recitation of the Apostles' Creed. May you say it with me. I hope that you can say this with a heart of faith and belief. Let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 
and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Just as a word of introduction to this next section, um, this idea came from, I remember when I was a child, um, my dad would do pulpit um, fill different places. And occasionally, uh, if there were a lot of children in the congregation, he would invite all of the children up during the sermon and have a lesson just for them right at the front. Um, and I just remember that was uh, really exciting for me as a kid to be a part of. And I know that we've talked about a lot of great big concepts tonight, um, some things that even as adults we're still wrapping our minds around. And sometimes the best way to really absorb and understand something like that is with a story. And so I'm going to invite Debbie up. Um, she's one of our great storytellers um, here in our church. And um, I'll also like to invite all of the kids up who would like to come up and listen to Debbie's story. Uh, this is from Luke's Gospel. This is the story of Simeon and him meeting Jesus in the temple. Now, a lot of this um, we've made up and we've guessed at what it might have been like for Simeon, um, but he does quote portions of scripture in this lesson, so just understand this isn't all um, exactly what the Bible says, but this is a, our best guess what it must have been like to be Simeon. Simeon had lived in the land of Judea for many, many years, which is why his skin had become quite wrinkled. This was also the reason why he walked with a thick stick his son had given him. It was stained dark ebony except for a few inches below the top where his hand rested and the bottom which was caked with the dust from the road. His long gray beard and dark walking stick made everyone in the city of Jerusalem recognize him as he passed them on his way to the temple to worship. Simeon loved to visit the temple and worship Jehovah. For about as long as anyone in Jerusalem could remember, Simeon had faithfully gone up Mount Zion to pay honor to the one true God. The more devout members of the city would cheerfully greet him as he passed them. And even the invading Roman soldiers came to respect the man with the gray beard and dark walking stick. Most of the people living in Jerusalem would have been surprised to find out that Simeon had not been devoted to God his whole life. When Simeon was a much younger man, before he had wrinkles and a limp, he lived for himself. If he wanted something, he would get it, no matter the cost or whether it was his or not. His father would remind him what the law of Moses said about stealing, but Simeon would not listen. Simeon would often see beautiful things in the marketplace, and he would stare at them, wishing they were his. His mother reminded him that the law also says not to covet which means wanting something that's not yours. Oh, and how Simeon hated going to the synagogue and the temple. When he grew up and was able to have a job trading in the city, he often grumbled about not being able to trade on the Sabbath. Imagine the money he could be making, he thought. 
But his employer reminded him that the law says to keep the Sabbath holy, the Lord's day. Simeon knew the law. All young Hebrew boys memorized large portions of it before their 13th birthday. But Simeon resented and disliked much of what it told him to do. But one day, something began to change in Simeon's mind. He began to understand that the law had not been given by someone who didn't want good things for him, but someone who loved him and wanted the best. Slowly, Simeon learned who God really was, and as his love for God grew, his love for the word of God grew as well. And soon Simeon tried to keep God's law, not because he was afraid of God or because it was what he had been told to do, but because he wanted to please his creator. As Simeon grew into a man and then an old man and eventually a very old man, he also grew in his love and adoration for God and the things that he had revealed to his people. Simeon soon had less interest in all of those beautiful things he had once wanted more than anything else. He, God was changing his heart. And as his heart changed to be more like God's, people noticed. By the time our story begins, people not only knew Simeon as the man who had the long gray beard and dark walking stick, but also as the man who loved and feared God. Sometimes people would wonder how it was possible that Simeon was even still alive. He was so old. But Simeon knew. God had told him when he was younger and after his heart had begun to change, that he would not die until he saw the promised Messiah. The Messiah is a person that God had told about hundreds of years before Simeon was even born. He was going to be a person sent from God to deliver God's chosen people, the children of Israel. The children of Israel had been delivered from things before, like the slavery to the Egyptians, and captivity in the lands of, the Babylon, of Babylon and Persia. But this deliverance wasn't like one of those, although many Hebrews hoped the Messiah would come and deliver them from the Romans. This deliverance instead was from sin and the curse of death that God's law taught about. So Simeon was waiting patiently, worshiping God at the temple, looking forward to when he would meet this great deliverer. As Simeon thought about what this person might look like, he would often imagine a great leader, someone tall with broad shoulders and a majestic outfit. But as he reflected more on what he had learned about God, this image of the Messiah in Simeon's mind changed. God seemed to use very humble and sometimes unlikely people to do his work. This Messiah might come instead as a poor man. It was even possible that he would be hard to recognize. Simeon thought about this often. 
and eventually realized that it takes a while for someone to grow into a man. And perhaps he would see the Messiah as a baby. As Simeon was walking back to his home one evening after worshiping at the temple, he passed by a group of people who were talking excitedly. Good evening, Simeon, one of the men called to him. Shalom, Simeon called back. What's got you all so excited? Well, haven't you heard the rumors going around? Simeon said, no, I try not to pay attention to rumors. But it's about some shepherds from, from Bethlehem, another men of, member of the group yelled to him as Simeon walked closer. Can you imagine people like that causing all this commotion, asked the first man. That is odd, said Simeon. Shepherds usually keep to themselves. What happened? The word is that they saw a group of angels. Really? Where? While they were in the fields last night. They're claiming that these angels told them to go into the town and that in a manger... Can you believe that, said another voice, cutting off the first man. In a manger of all places. They told us they were sleeping in a stable because the, all the inns were full. Thanks to this crazy census, Augustus ordered. And they want us to believe that this child is the Messiah. Oh, not only the Messiah, said the first man, speaking over more murmurs, but that he is actually the Lord himself. What nonsense, replied someone else. Mm, that is interesting indeed, thought Simeon out loud. Well, I must be going. Shalom. Shalom, Simeon. The Messiah in a manger. To everyone else, it might have sounded like nonsense, but to Simeon, that made total sense. It was unlikely and humble, just the things God likes to use. Simeon thought much about this the next few days as he walked back and forth from worshiping at the temple. Then it occurred to him that the law told Hebrew families to take the firstborn male children to the temple to dedicate them eight days after they were born. If what the shepherds had said was true, he would be able to see the baby in only three more days. Those days dragged on in the slowest way for Simeon. The only times he didn't notice was when he was at the temple worshiping. Finally, the day arrived. Simeon surprised people as he passed them that morning. He was walking much faster than they were used to seeing him go by. And his greeting was cheerier than normal too. Simeon was rushing up the mountain to get to the temple early so that he couldn't possibly miss the baby. He arrived at the courtyard and eagerly waited. <clears throat> a few hours into the day, he saw a family enter. He stood up to get a better look at them. They had the finest robes he could imagine of dark blue and embroidered with silver and gold threads. These weren't the kind of people that would have just had a baby in a stable a week ago. He sat back down to wait some more. 
he saw a few more families come and go, but they didn't look the part either. Maybe what the shepherd said wasn't true, he thought. It was unlikely. He reminded himself of when God used Moses to speak for him, even though he had a stutter. And when God used a small army and Gideon to feed the Midianites, the sun was beginning to get lower. And as it was soon going to be time for Simeon to go back home, when he spotted one last family at the tables buying some pigeons and turtle doves, just the animals to dedicate the child with, he thought. Just as he had known that he would see the Messiah, he knew that this was the baby he had waited for. He stood slowly. His legs had grown very tired, and he walked to meet them. Shalom, he greeted them. Shalom, the parents replied. Although they had never met Simeon before, the elderly were very respected. And so the mother placed her baby in his hands as he extended them toward her son. Sovereign Lord, Simeon prayed, holding the child. Now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. The baby's parents stared in wonder at the old man. They could hardly believe these wonderful things he had said about their son. As Simeon handed the baby back to his mother, he realized that not only was he holding a child, but what the shepherd said really was true. He was holding Emmanuel, God in flesh. He looked at the mother and said, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Simeon smiled at the parents and took one more look at the baby. Picking up his walking stick, he left the temple happier than he'd ever been. His face shone with such joy that those who would have normally greeted him with a friendly shalom only stared at the old man with the long gray beard and dark walking stick. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them.